Hey there, my name is Roy and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly. And we're glad that you've joined us today for our online service. We're beginning a brand new series called Unstoppable. Now, have you ever felt like, you ever felt like everything is going wrong? You ever felt like, like it just seems like things can't get any worse? And I mean, I'm not talking about like trivial things. I mean major things going wrong. Almost like it feels like you're under attack. It almost feels like there's something out there that is intent on your demise. Well, in our last series, Jesus uh, said in John 10.10, he said that I come to give you life to the full, but he also made this statement that there's an enemy. And this enemy, their goal is to steal, kill, and destroy you. And that's what he's saying. He's saying there's a spiritual battle that rages around you. And it is true. It's true, but we choose at times to, we choose at times to kind of numb ourselves from it and not recognize that there's a spiritual battle that's going on around us. We, we, we numb ourselves with the busyness of our lives, our, our work, and, and, and moving around the kids, and, and our hobbies, or TV shows. And, but there's a spiritual battle that's all around us at all times. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next number of weeks. Now, to be clear, though, when we talk about this, we... We're talking about it from a standpoint of victory. Victory in Jesus. The war has already been won. The devil just doesn't know it. During World War II, Hiro Onoda was a lieutenant in the Imperial Japanese Army. And his order was to occupy Lubang Island in the Philippines. And his job was to protect this island at all costs from falling into the hands of the enemy. The year, the next year after uh, after he was put on that island, the Allies bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But Onoda had no idea. He had no idea this had happened. Shortly after, the war ended, but still, Onoda had no idea. Onoda just kept fighting. Every time he came across somebody, he would fight with them. He would shoot at them. Year after year, 29 years after the war had finished, Onoda was still fighting anybody who came into direct contact with him. Even when the police pushed through the jungle with megaphones asking him to stop shooting the locals and surrender, he would not give up. It wasn't until 1974, 30 years later, police brought in his former commanding officer who gave him the order to stand down and surrender. It was then that he surrendered. He didn't know he was fighting a war that was already decided. And that's what Satan's doing. He's fighting a war that's already been determined. So while we recognize that there is a spiritual battle, we don't approach it from a state of fear or, or defeat. We fight, we fight spiritual battles with a sense of confidence that we know how this war ends. That God fights on our side. Well, during World War II, as soon as Nazi Germany attacked Poland in 1939, France and, and the United Kingdom declared war. Canada would join with the Allies a week later. But what we don't realize sometimes is when we think of World War II, we know that the Americans played a huge role in it, but our neighbors to the south, however, chose not to enter into World War II right away. They would wait two years in 1941 before they would get, get involved in that war. See, initially they took this stance as a neutral party. Like this, this war is, is an over there thing. It's a European thing. It's not our problem. 
I mean, whenever you're thinking about getting involved in something that seems kind of risky, it's easy to justify your place of complacency. It's easy to just think, that's not my problem, not my people. That's not even our continent. Surely someone else will fix it. And that's where the U.S. stood for a while. Within the country, there was a group that was leading this charge, and they called themselves the isolationists. An isolationist believes that it's best not to get involved in the affairs of others. Even when there's prevailing evil, even when there's injustice, it's best not to get involved. Well, before too long, it became apparent that Hitler was not backing down. That he was not going to stop until he ruled everything. And millions of Jews in the process died. And now the U.S. felt they needed to join the war. And so the U.S. joined with the other allies. And together, they would, they would begin an offensive on June 6, 1944, that we famously know as D-Day where there was a victory on the beaches, beaches of Normandy. 150,000 troops, 5,000 boats would storm the shoreline against Hitler's forces. It was imperative that they secured this spot and got a foothold in a spot that was going to lead them, it would ultimately lead them to victory. And these boats that they would arrive, these 150,000 troops arrived in, were called Higgins boats. They were pretty basic boats that were carrier boats that could carry many troops. And when they got close enough to the shoreline, the metal gate would drop down and they would unload all of their troops amongst a barrage of gunfire. Hitler knew at some point that he would be attacked along this shoreline. And so miles and miles of bunkers were dug. Close to four million landmines were, were laid out. The sacrifices were enormous. They say 10,000 allied lives lost their lives and were sacrificed on that day. But here's the thing. There's no way to defeat evil without engagement. You can't live a neutral life and be part of defeating evil. Isolationism doesn't work if you want to make a difference with your life. Engagement is necessary. See, this lie of staying neutral believes that someone else will do it. Someone else will take care of it. That life will be better if I just mind my own business and I fight for my comfort rather than act in courage for a cause that's bigger than me. My hope for you in this series is that you would be challenged throughout the series to move away from the mindset of complacency and comfort. As we talked about in our last series, Four Cups, God wants you to discover your purpose and use your life to accomplish something bigger than you. To accomplish his will on this earth. But it will require courage at times. The series is called Unstoppable. And what that refers to is the mission of the church. God has a plan that he wants to accomplish in this world through the church. And this plan is unstoppable. And maybe right now it feels like, it feels like maybe we as a church, a universal church, are not unstoppable. Like in our political climate, in our country, it feels like it's a threat to us. Or the culture is not just post-Christian, it's anti-Christian. It can, it, can it can be easy to feel discouraged, beat up, and hopeless. But if you ever read through the New Testament, we as the church are unstoppable. If you read through the New Testament, you'll realize that that wasn't the sentiment. That wasn't the feeling. That what they were dealing with was way more anti-Christian than what we're dealing with, yet the tone was one of hope 
and determination that God's doing something in this world and his kingdom is unstoppable. No matter how many obstacles, no matter how many enemy bunkers, no matter how many landmines have been set out, you can't stop God and you can't slow him down. Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, victory is inevitable. And when you understand that, it should change the way you live, the confidence you have, the hope that you hold on to. Because nothing can stop what God has set in motion. Not sin, not darkness. Jesus took care of that on the cross. Not persecution, not the government, not COVID, not even death can stop what God has started. The plan of God involves the church. And that means that the church is unstoppable. On a side note, did you know that every other religion, if you you want to know where the highest concentration of believers for that religion is, you go to the place where that religion originated. For example, there are 1.2 billion Hindus in the world. 1.1 billion of them live in India. Buddhism has 535 million followers. 98.6% of them live in Southeast Asia. Christianity, on the other hand, is a global religion. And the reason is, is because it is relevant and transferable to no matter where it goes. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has a conversation with his disciples. And what I want you to note before we we jump into reading it, and this is important, is where this conversation takes place is, is is as important as the actual conversation itself. The context of where this conversation takes place is significant. They head to this place called Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles from where they were. It's about a 12-hour walk to get there. And so they travel by for 12 hours by foot to this place where most moral people would never go. It's the wrong side of the tracks. It's a place of darkness and pagan worship. It's, it's not your typical rabbi field trip, that's for sure. And while they're there, they have this conversation. And Jesus looks at the, came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Like He's like, I don't know if they're going to say it directly to me. I don't know if they're telling me the truth when they, when they say it, but what are the rumors that are out there? What, what, what's, what's, what, are you, what are you guys hearing? Who do they say I am? And the disciples kind of struggle a little bit to give a direct answer. And they're like, well, well Jesus, um, they've seen your works and they've, they've seen your miracles. And, and they're really not that sure. I mean, verse 14 says, well, the, some say John the Baptist. And some say Elijah. And some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And they're like, I mean, we, we know you're not John the Baptist. I mean, we've seen you and John the Baptist together. So we know that's not true. And, but they're not quite sure, Jesus. They're not, they're not sure who you are. And then Jesus gets personal with them, as only Jesus can. And he looks at them and he says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? See, I know who your friends think I am. And I know how your family feels about me. And I know what happens when my name is brought up at a family gathering at Christmas or Thanksgiving. or I know what the media says. I know what's being said about me on social media. But I'm asking you, what do you think? What do you say? What have you decided? Who, who do you say I am? 
And this is the question that Jesus asks each and every person. As a church, this is the question we need to be asking each other. I know for some of you, when it comes to church, like you don't like it to be that personal. You'd rather just tune in and, and watch a sermon and, and fill your head with knowledge. Or For some of you, you'd rather just get some practical tips. Um, help me with my marriage. Help me with my anger issues. Help me not fear. What, what can I do? What's the Bible say on this, this topic? And, or, or maybe you, you go to church or you watch out of tradition because your family does that or they've always done that. Or maybe you're watching right now with your family and, and you're really just watching because you're trying to make somebody happy. And you really don't want anybody to ask you this question. Who do you say he is? Young people, listen to me for a moment. You need to be able to answer this question on your own. Mom and dad can't answer this for you. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, they, they've already answered this question for themselves. But if this whole Christianity, Jesus thing is going to change your life and be worth following even after you leave the home, you have to come face to face with this question yourself. Who do you say I am? And so Jesus asks his disciples this and Maybe they look at each other, and maybe it's kind of awkward. Maybe they look down at the ground, they're not sure what to say. And maybe there's this awkward silence, but the one who always seems to speak first, speaks first. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John. Because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You don't learn this from human beings. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And so here they are, they're in Caesarea Philippi in this evil backdrop. And Jesus says, Peter, you are the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And Jesus is revealing to the disciples through Peter's statement that he is speaking of his plan for the church. And he's not doing this at the temple. I mean, if you were a movie director and this was a story just made up and you're like, we need a good backdrop for Jesus to reveal this huge statement about the plan he has for his church. You probably like, hey, let's do this, in, let's do this on the temple stairs. That would be a good spot. Or, or, or why don't we do it at uh, the Sea of Galilee? Like Jesus has done some of his most powerful teaching there. That would be a good spot. You never pick Caesarea Philippi. But Jesus chooses this place of darkness on purpose. It's here that wicked things happen. At the base of a mountain. A mountain that has pagan temples built into it. And a cave that was nicknamed the gate to Hades. It was thought that evil spirits would come and go to get to the underworld. Here's what I want you to think of the, Think of the most wretched place you could travel today. A, a place where you would be uncomfortable with the amount of sin that's going on and, and, and wickedness that's going on if you were there. It would make you blush. And that would pale in comparison to Caesarea Philippi. This was a pagan worship center where prostitution and infant sacrifice and bestiality ran rampant. And it's no wonder people believe that it sat at the gate to hell. And so Jesus takes his guys on this field trip here. And to say they were uncomfortable is an understatement. But Jesus says, look at this. 
This is why the church is so important. What you're seeing is wicked, yes. And it's broken, yes. And so are the people. And so I'm going to raise a church that will not avoid the gates of hell. I'm going to raise a church that will storm the gates of hell. Now, it's easy for us in 2021 to look at the actions and behaviors as you read through that and the people of that time and think, well, that was back then. I mean, we're more civilized people now. We're, 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 we've come so far as a society. We've moved past the, the idolatry and wicked acts and ancient sacrifices of Caesarea Philippi. But have we? I mean, have we really? I mean, what else would you call a porn site but, but, a, but a pagan temple? Well, what is it when you work 70 hours a week so that you can chase more money? Meanwhile, you sacrifice uh, you, your marriage and your kids and your home on the altar of success. The, pe- the temples just look different. Maybe it's a bar. Maybe it's got more lights like a casino where we sacrifice things in worship of other gods. They're all temples. The temples are different looking, but we worship the same false gods. And so Jesus looks around at the brokenness and the pain and the evil desires, and he says, right here, right here, this is the spot right here, the perfect place to build my church, and the power of hell will not conquer it. Here's the thing. You can get the wrong idea of what Jesus said when he, he, read this, when he, when he made this statement. When you read through this and you see the statement... When you realize, and he says, the power of hell will not conquer it. You, you get this, this, this picture in your mind of the church being under attack by the power of hell. The, but the church's walls are too strong. The, the de- defenses are too powerful for, 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 the, for hell to be able to break through. But that's not what Jesus meant. I mean, if you're reading through this in some of the other, some of the other versions, interpretations... King James Version says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are not used as a, as a, a weapon. They're not used to attack. Gates are used to keep people out as defense. And so the picture Jesus had was the gates of hell are the ones that are under attack. It's the church storming the gates, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It being the church. And when you look at the statement in this way, it's a huge difference. When the church is focused on playing defense, we are focused on stopping something. But when the church is focused on offense, the church is focused on starting something. When I was a kid's pastor, one of the favorite kids' games that they, they, they loved to play was this game called Pirate Tag. And basically, we would take in the gymnasium, we would cut the, the gymnasium into four quadrants, and we'd put, split the kids into four teams. And Inside your quadrant, you were safe. Once you crossed over that line you are now able to be tagged and taken to jail. The reason you want to cross over that line is because each quadrant in your corner had four different types of balls. It might be a football, basketball, volleyball, tennis ball. And your job was to get in, steal a ball, bring it back to your quadrant, and the first team that could get four of the same type of ball would win. So you also, as well as trying to steal a ball, you wanted to protect the ones you had because you didn't want the other teams to get them so that they would win. And so you might have six... Six players on, on the team, and 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 you might you might have you might have like they might come up with a strategy. Okay, we're gonna have three people guard, and we're gonna send three people to attack. 
And, and kids are funny because they'll come up with different strategies. And once in a while, you have kids, when they would strategize, they're like, okay, this, it's kind of hard to guard everybody with th- only three people. So let's, let's get all six. All six and we'll play defense. And nobody will break through our wall. But you can't win. If you never go on the offensive, you can't win. Discouraging at times to turn on the news and see the evil and in the world and see morals slipping and and to hear people say it's never been this bad, it's never been this this terrible. To which Jesus would say to you, Come here. Come with me. Come walk with me. And you follow Jesus and you walk for 25 miles. And you stand at the edge of Caesarea Philippi. And even you can't believe the evil you were seeing, but you notice that Jesus is not shaken or afraid. And he looks at you in the eye and he says, I will build my church, and the power of hell will not conquer it. See, what if we decided that we were going to be a church that is committed to playing offense? We decide we're not going to hide inside the walls, but we're going to go to where there is no light. We're going to bring light to the dark places. Many years ago, many years ago, a, a pastor from Glasgow, Scotland, named George McLeod, looked up at the stained glass window that sat over the platform of his sanctuary. There was this phrase across this stained glass window that said, Glory to God in the highest, carved into the glass. And as he looked at it, he noticed that a pane of glass was broken and missing. The pane in which the, the letter E in the word highest was carved. And suddenly he found himself seeing these words in a completely different light. They now said glory to God in, in, in the high street. High street was a nearby avenue in their town. And it struck McLeod as the only way to glorify God is to glorify him in the high street. The only way to truly glorify God is to glorify him where we live. In the places that need the light, not within the walls. God is challenging you to push past your comfort zone. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how you were made for a purpose, a purpose that comes down to people and heaven. Will you accept the challenge? You can ask my wife, but I can have a stubborn streak to me. The best way to get me to do something is to tell me I can't. When I first went to Petrolia as a kid's pastor, I was raring, I was eager, ready to go, I was... It was, I started in September, and I was already making plans. We were going to do a kid's Christmas musical. It was going to be fantastic. And then someone told me, told me like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. Maybe you, shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't go so quick. Maybe you should kind of take some time and gain your bearings a little bit. And when we tried one last year, and it was it went kind of bad. So you're never going to have enough time to pull off kid's Christmas musical. That's all I needed to hear. I mean, I was determined now. Challenge accepted. And we did. We pulled off a great musical. This needed to be challenged. I think inside all of us, there's this need to be challenged. We default to chase comfort. But that's not what drives us. That's not what gets us going. That's not how we were wired. We need to be challenged. Comfort is attractive. Which is why if I pulled up two boats and said, hey, jump on, one boat was a Higgins war boat and the other was a cruise ship, most people would jump on the cruise ship. It's entertaining. It meets my selfish needs. It's all you can eat. But you don't storm the gates of hell on a cruise ship. 
As a church, we're committed to not be a group of isolationists. We will not settle for being neutral or playing defense. Instead, we will storm the gates of hell with the love and grace of Jesus. Next week, we're going to talk about the weapons that God gives us for war. They're not the weapons that you would expect. It's not hatred and anger. It's not raising your voices and pounding your fists. It's love and grace and humility. And if you consider yourself a part of the church, you're part of an allied coalition. All across the globe today, there are people like you and I meeting. And Jesus is going to use each willing person to storm the gates of hell. And I hope you accept the challenge. I hope you push back complacency and comfort. Whether you choose to join in on the attack or not, God's church will push forward. God's church will be victorious. God's church is unstoppable. Let's pray. God, we have this tendency to like to be comfortable. We have this tendency to um, shy away from the challenges, even though that's how we were, we were wired. That's, that's when we are at our best. That's when we're at our most effective. That's when we truly understand our purpose, when we understand that we were meant for more than to just play defense just attend church, just check off a box. And so God, I pray that in the coming days that the church would go on the offensive, would go into the dark places of this world where there's hurt and pain and bring grace and mercy and light and love with it. It's, that's how we change the world. That's how we change things. Not by yelling as loud as we can what we're against, but demonstrating what we're for. So God, I pray that as we go through this series, that that would become more and more apparent that this is what we were meant to do. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.